Can a podcast make you sick? I don't mean listening to one. I mean hosting one. I'm asking because I've been battling a bad cold and cough ever since the fateful night I interviewed my guests for episode 107 of the Independent Minded Podcast. Only one third of the Scottish trio, the trash can Sinatras, was feeling under the weather on that fateful night when we parlayed inside the band's dressing room at Jammin' Java in Vienna, Virginia, the guitarist and mostly lead singer Frank Reeder. The irony? I did an interview, Frank. And yet our brief encounter, one in which included a handshake and a fateful request for him to take a photo using my phone, most likely led to the temporary demise of my immune system. But that's okay. If you're not willing to get out there into the cesspool that is the world, you might as well live in a bubble. I have to give Frank credit too. He came equipped with hand sanitizer, but it wasn't enough to stop the germs. Or the interview. And while Frank sat in the corner resting his voice and sipping a hot toddy, my attention turned to his bandmates. John Douglas and the band's bald, cheeky lead guitarist, Paul Livingston. The Trash Can Sinatras have been making albums for 30 years, but they didn't enter my orbit until 2017, when a girl invited me to come see them play an acoustic set at Joe's Pub in New York City. We went again last year, and this time the band performed their first two albums, from beginning to end. Tonight, Frank, John, and Paul are in town to perform two more albums. And now I can finally call myself a fan, but the Trash Can Sinatras are one of those bands whose touring schedule relies on super fans. Folks who know these albums backwards and forwards, who can sing along to all the songs. They're predictably low maintenance and refreshingly old school. The band famous for selling concert footage on USB flash drives is unapologetic about how they present themselves to their fan base. At one point in the interview, I attempt to dig back into the band's past and a rough stretch that coincided with the eight years between the release of these two albums. But when I ask the trash cans to discuss, they decline. Was I being dissed? Or did the trash cans prefer to talk about what matters most? The songs, the art, the fans, each other. For a band doing this over three decades, that sort of focus makes a lot of sense. It's a recurring theme here on the Independent Minded Podcast. Be grateful, be positive. The past is the past. And it's a lesson I've tried to learn in my own music career. Live in the here and now. Shortly after our conversation, the band hits the stage in front of an intimate sold-out crowd. Frank sings like a champ. He tells stories in between songs that make me lament his non-participation in the interview. John's sweet vocal harmonies and Paul's nuanced guitar playing make for another memorable performance. After the show, I gather my gear and head to the merch table to pick up the band's weightlifting album on vinyl. I head home energized, eager to get working on new music of my own, and blissfully unaware of the sniffles and phlegm that await. Ron Scalzo, Trash Can Sinatra's superfan. This is what it's all about. Well, maybe not the phlegm part. But once again, another interview provides inspiration. The Trash Cans and I talk about revisiting old songs, overlooking Radiohead and the Beatles, working within limitations, and doing things their own way. Let's kick it off with How Can I Apply from the album A Happy Pocket, then my conversation with the Trash Can Sinatras, right here on Independent Minded. Helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they do. 
watch me interview your bandmates? No, no, I don't. I, I'm not, I certainly don't want to put pressure on you, but it's an interesting dynamic. It's not a good idea. You want to go in the bathroom? No, but just don't stand. It's, a, it's just a new experience for me to, to interview two-thirds of the band while one-third of the band just sits in the corner like a bad boy. <laughs> All right, I'm inside the dressing room at Jam and Java in Virginia. This is my first Jam and Java podcast experience with uh, a band that's been around for a while, Trash Can Sinatras, and I'm with John Douglas and Paul Livingston from the band. Frank Reeder is in the other room, recovering. He's saving his voice for the show. And I noticed, noticed you guys did a VIP experience out there before the show began. Yes. Is that common for you to do it before the show? I've seen other bands do that, but yeah, typically I feel VIP experiences happen after the show. Yeah, we do it before every show. And I, I'm pretty sure most of them happen before the show. Because like, what band wants to hang around after the show and do more stuff? Uh, as soon as the last chord, all those big bands want to be out of there, don't they? You could argue that bands, when they come in, you know, they're coming from out of town and they it's maybe true. want to get some R and R. Frank over here is drinking a hot toddy, We'd, yeah. recovering. You know, some uh, some artists meditate. Perfect thing to do between sound check and show. Right, kill some time. Right. right. Well, it's organized that way. Nerves isn't a thing for you at this point, I would imagine. You played so many shows that yeah, it's not like we've been doing it for so long. I used to get nervous before gigs, and then somehow that just went away. Do you remember uh, the time when it went away? Maybe. No. <laughs> Before we crack the mics, John asked me if I have any knowledge or experience of the trash can Sinatras. And, and I was explaining to Paul before a little backstory. I was courting a young lady in 2017 who has very good musical taste. And I'd certainly heard the name the trash can Sinatras, but I feel like a lot of these podcast interviews are almost like part of my, it's like an apology tour. I was a college radio program and music director right around the time that you guys got started. Uh -huh. And I'm here to apologize for overlooking the trash can Sinatras in the 90s. Sorry. Right around the time that Kate came out, I was probably surrounded by a room full of CDs. And I'm sure that trash can Sinatras album was in the music library and, and I sadly overlooked it. That's all right. We'll do it again. Well, <laughs> the, the good news is when I courted this young lady 20 something years later, she is a big fan of the trash can Sinatras. And me being open minded about music and a musician myself, when I got an invite to see you guys play at Joe's Pub in 2017, I took the opportunity to do so, and I was very much blown away by your performance. Fast forward to a year later, when I told this young woman that I was moving down to DC, she had made arrangements to come back to New York to see you guys play at the Highline Ballroom where you performed okay. Cake and I've Seen Everything uh -huh. live. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm late to the party, but uh, I'm backstage at the party now. Yes. And um, have you had an experience with that as, as music lovers and musicians yourself where there was this band that existed 20 years before and all of a sudden you realized, where have I been this whole time? For me, like right now, my favorite band for the past few years is Radiohead. And we played with Radiohead in the 90s. And I just... You did? Yeah. I didn't, where? I didn't care. I didn't... I didn't Chicago and San Francisco. You didn't care because you just, I wasn't, I didn't, you weren't aware. I wasn't aware. And now I'm like, we played with Radiohead. I didn't even watch them. <laughs> You're touring in support of two more albums. You're playing a Happy Pocket and Weightlifting. The internet paints the Happy Pocket era as a bit of a dark time. Is that accurate? 
Well, it's actually not. It doesn't paint the whole picture. It's a very prolific time, to be honest. We had lots of material. I think every single that in the UK that came off that record, when there was singles, had three B-sides. and there was, I think there was three or four singles came off it. We just seemed to have tons and tons and tons of stuff. But I think we knew there was a frost in relations between us and the record company. So a lot of personnel had shifted. So there was a, certainly a different vibe. But I think maybe we wanted to put out as much as we could with what was left of, of possibly a relationship with the with the record company at the time. So it was dark, but we still, you know, we we still wrote a lot of stuff. So that's light, right? But from the business perspective of the band, which business perspective has <laughs> never been bright. It's it's always dark. It's not really worth talking about business no, side I mean, of things. It's, it's like one of those a... things. It happens to every band and it's one of those things that you have to sort of try and practice or figure out a way to continue to make music without worrying or dwelling on the business side of things. Because as soon as you start going to all those sorts of meetings and stuff like that, the actual act of making music and what you're making music for changes and it becomes something that you're like, well, why am I, what, what is this for? Just to go to more meetings? I don't think you can really do both. But isn't it unavoidable when it's you make art and you want people to listen to it and you want to get it out to the masses, you know, to put it yeah, through the but, machine? Yeah, exactly. But just the way dwell on it too much is one of those things you do. It's not really the job. I mean, I'm old school. I, th I think a manager should do all that stuff and just leave people that make music to make music, you know? Yeah. I just think it gets in the way of making music. There's lessons we've learned over the years. Like this tour is a classic example of keeping your overheads down, but still function, you know. And when you when you get your head around little things like that, you can pack it away. You don't have to think about it. You're out playing, you're playing with the guys you love and the songs that you love. And you know, it's a very different world now from what it was when when you're that era you're talking about. But our, our main thing has always been delegate that side of things to other people, whether it's managers or, or just A and R people. The financial side will look after themselves. We've never been one for like you know getting sequined pianos or you know any crazy extravagant nonsense. So it's difficult to talk about. Really, it's not something we do. We we, we make songs. Maybe the past 15, 20 years when we've been out on our own, yeah, we've learned a few things about how we can still function and, and get out there. But I mean, even in this day and age, you still get burned. You know, the so-called, you know, major shift to crowdsourcing, how that was going to be the future. You know, we've learned that that can just as easily be scammed as anything else. So well, I read on your website that you had a bad experience with the site Pledge Music. Yeah, and we're not alone in that. You know, it's just we're living in the Wild West. That's what it seems like in every, <laughs> in every strata of our lives. You know, that things used to be solid and predictable. And they're not anymore. The whole basis of, of security is and anything is sort of gone. Everything's up for grabs these days. Does that make you feel bad or worse? That it, I've often referred to the music industry as the wild, wild west. That's why I laugh. Well, no, it used to be really organized. It used to be really slick. I mean, we, we were the little guys from Irvine, and we, we met some people, and through that, and them liking our music, suddenly we had records in every shop on the planet. And it was advertised in every shop on the planet, and everywhere we go, there's people who know our name. And, and that's that's a massive thing that the record business used to be able to do and used to want to do. And because that's not there anymore, there's none of that anymore. There's just this vast swathe of horrors of stuff. There was something kind of good about the idea of a band on a record label would make a ton of money. The record label would take some of that money and invest it in a bunch of wee bands. And, I mean, invest it. Sometimes record company would give you money to make a demo, and then they decided they didn't want it. But meanwhile, you got to make a demo, you know, for free. 
And nobody does that. I mean, Spotify and those sorts of people don't even pay the bands that they should be paying, never mind the up-and-coming bands that they're not paying, you know. So you know what's going on. You know uh, what's going on. I, I glean. <laughs> he gleans. <laughs> Can we talk about the band's origins? You guys are from Scotland. I've discovered there are more than a few famous bands from Scotland. Where would you rank yourselves amongst the most famous bands from Scotland? Well, I mean... <laughs> It's very difficult to talk about rank and fame. Frank's is 29th. 29th? 29th, yeah. I don't know. We just play our furrow and we try and do our thing. I always ask this, whether it's a, a new band, an up-and-coming band, or veterans of, of a music scene like yourself. How did it get started for you guys? It was a vibrant scene in our town. There was a lot of unemployment. And it was kind of acknowledged <laughs> unemployment, so there wasn't a lot of pressure to go and get a job because there wasn't much. So family pressures went away. You were just in town. and It was accepted that you know, there wasn't any careers going to be happening. And there was, there was a, a very artistic community. We were brought up in a kind of well-read, good part of the culture at the time. And uh, so there was lots of musicians, there was places to play, and bands formed and split up and other bands formed. And, and we ended up doing our thing. And, uh, it was a kind of instant chemistry when we, we started doing things. It's still pretty solid. And what's the secret for keeping it together this long? We never drove ourselves to be like, oh, we need to make an album a year. No matter how many people okay. wanted us to do that, we're like, nah, we'll just do it as long as it takes. We, when the album's finished, it's finished, you know. Also, we don't live anywhere near each other. That probably helps. <laughs> and our families sort of understand, you know, the nature of who we are as people. So the outside pressure's not there. The other side is the music works. People all over the world like it, and when they like it, they seem to like it in a way that, that the way I like music, when I like something, I really like it and I want them have everything, every B-side, and see every chapter. Yeah, you're an audiophile like me. Yeah, so people that like us seem to be in that, that group and are kind of passionate about it. So when you know it's working, when you know it works, you've done something and people like it, and 10 years later it still means something to them. Yeah, you're I one of those you, bands for sure. That's Yeah, sort of. Uh, so that's a kind of good thing for, for keeping going. When I saw you guys on the last two tours, you've been playing acoustic shows. Uh, what's the motivation for that? It's, it's either that or do nothing visibly. Yeah, you know we can we could quite easily not do anything visibly, but still be working away on songs and eventually come up with a record. And then when we did do if we did do that, we bring out a record and people would say, "Wow, where have you been for ten years?" But we we figured out that we can be visible by touring as a stripped down thing. People can come and see us, and still see that we're around, and we can connect with each other, and connect with our material again, and it, it sort of helps in a sort of a, it's like a fertilizer. The way it kind of fertilizes the, the notion of, of keeping going financially is it has to be the three piece there's so much money involved in getting together working visas travel all that nonsense but it's limitations you know working within limitations is kind of interesting all right so john's thinking about the business end of things oh, well right. i mean i don't it doesn't get me down you know we're all individuals my mind seems to be programmed where i can take on something understand it and then put it away somewhere i don't even think about it again because it's sorted you know, there was times when I wasn't like that and I would freak out and I wouldn't be able to go near a guitar because it was like too stressful because the thought of the whole process beginning was a nightmare. But age might have done that to me. I'm kind of all right about that. I'm a singer-songwriter. I play the piano. I just release some new material and every once in a while I get the bug to play live. When I go back and try to play songs from four or five years ago, it's a bit of a challenge. For you guys, you're playing full albums that you released decades ago. Can you run me through the, the challenge of trying to relearn that stuff or stay fresh when you have to basically perform an album from beginning to end? 
I feel like maybe we got lucky or we were just smart when we recorded these albums because the ones that we've done, the first two and then the next two, they just seem to be sort of arranged in a way. From my perspective, I was like, how, how are we going to do this? How am I going to play electric guitar with the, the two acoustics? And how is it going to work dynamically? And it just turns out that if I just play what I play anyway, the, the dynamics are there. And so I'm like, I'll just keep doing that for the songs that it works for. And it's worked for them all. So a loud part of the song, the guitar part goes loud. And I'm like, well, that's, that's lucky. That's good for you. That's right? good for the lead guitar. Exactly. <laughs> it's working so out well for we Paul. we take everything away and the dynamics are pretty much still there. Or the changes. Sometimes it's the opposite dynamic, but the change is still there. People keep asking us if we're going to do the next two in the music and Wild Pendulum. And I don't think either of those would work as well as the first four. Because all. they're too they're polished? Like, too... in the music is sort of worked out as a band, playing riffs round and round in a circle. It's not so much songy. It's like every song has two bits and that's it. And so it's supposed to be a groove that's compelling about that album. If you take that away and you just have guitars playing two different sections, I don't, I don't know if it would work. I could be wrong. Does this apply to the two gentlemen in the band who play acoustic guitar? Yeah, I mean, as I say, as Paul said, for some reason, the way those songs are written and arranged lends themselves to not having the bass and the drums. It's kind of all right. They were written, a lot of them were written on acoustic guitar. Yeah, for some reason, they seem to work. So it's no, it's no great uh, shift to go and play them in a stripped down form. But yeah, you may be right. There'll be some ones that don't don't really sit it, but the first four records seem to sit it. What about from a lyrical perspective? You're singing these songs every night. The words are running around in your head all the time. Do you feel, uh, I know from my own, same thing from my own perspective, again, on a much smaller scale, when I look back at lyrics that I wrote five years ago, 10 years ago, at different points in my life, mm -hmm. I'm looking at them and listening to them from a different perspective than when I wrote them. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this stage when we're doing these shows, Frank sings all the songs. There's one or two that myself and Paul sing. So as a listener, I just find it really entertaining. I think the the work we've always done lyrically has been of a certain, you know, it reaches a certain level before it goes out the door. It's not necessarily about diary confessions or anything like that. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of them are, are kind of uh, observations or, or having fun with lyrics, painting pictures, being a bit abstract, impressionist. And that kind of approach seems to last. What a lot of the lyric writers are like, I like that. You know, it's not about specific to one precise thing it's painting pictures and having fun so i think generally lyrically nothing really it seems like oh that was naive or i don't really know what that was you know i've grown out of that you know nothing nothing seems to cross into that territory all sounds good i'd be remiss if i didn't ask about the origin of the name the trash can sinatras i'm sure no, you've been actually, asked i mean i think a lot of people listen to this podcast because they know us they're not that shit. but i don't know it well that's your <laughs> <fucking> <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I'll tell it. It's not. It's not a great story. That's the problem. Yeah, I, would, I would like to think, John, that some people who do not know no, right. the story of you're the right. trash cans and are going to listen to this podcast. Something like <laughs> there was like a group of unemployed guys getting together just to do something, or they had to put on a show, something like that. And so they had a bunch of trash cans and sticks, and they hit that and sang. Frank Sinatra. They lyrics. sang Frank Sinatra songs while banging on trash cans. Yes. 
and that's where the name came from. It was something to do while being unemployed. Any regrets about using that name, or is it something that should you... we have? I, I don't personally don't think so. I think it's a very unique name. To me, I hear the words when I hear trash can. We don't use the word trash can in Britain, and so for me, it's like yeah, top cat. You know, there's something very American and alleyway. Right. I, it, oh, right? see, I didn't look, think of it from that perspective. But it seems being an American. like in America, when Americans hear the word trash can, they think punky. That's what they think. I think a lot of people think we're going to be some sort of, what do you call that? Noisy. Or noisy or like 50s rockabilly type. Rockabilly, right. Like, that like post-punk, like the Dead Kennedys. Right. So I, I don't know. I think it's a great name. I've never not liked it. Well, I don't like it when it's trash can Sinatra's. It should be there. We're a band. Oh, but bands yeah. are, we're not trash can Sinatra's. We are yeah. the trash can yeah, Sinatra's. So it's the trash can Sinatra's officially. For me, right. for me, but officially, no, it's not. Because it's I see it on the internet all the time. Can we talk about bands that inspired you? Can we talk about the Beatles? Am I going out on a limb to, to say that you were inspired by the Beatles? No, I wasn't a big fan until later on in my life. Really? No, I grew up. I, I, one of the first songs I can remember hearing was a Beatles song. But when I started getting into music, uh, like I was a punk rocker. Before that, I was into like rock thing, was and all that kind of stuff. But then punk rock sort of took my head off. And uh, that was my thing. Who were the, some of the punk bands that, that inspired you when you were younger? Clash. But all the things that happened around about it, all the kind of other things that happened. With the notion that you could make something out of nothing, you could make it your own character, you could reflect yourself, you didn't have to be you know, a, a maestro. All those things were, were very inspiring. And considering those inspirations and the sound of the Trash Can Sinatras, don't you think it's a little ironic that you kind of gravitate more towards you know melodic singer songwriter sort of oh, stuff. It's Strummer and Jones are pretty melodic singer songwriter. Good point. But I mean, again, the only major lesson that I got from punk rock was do your own thing, do it well. So it doesn't matter what you do as long as it's it's do your as thing. Do it well and it's your thing. Got it. And what about you, Paul? I mean, it was it was heavy metal. It was Iron Maiden, Deep Purple. Was it really Black Sabbath? Oh, you're, you're uh, warming my heart here. This is this is music that I love. I mean, I was very young. I was eight. All right, I was, and so then that, that's what I listened to, and I loved it, and that's what drove me to play the guitar, and I, I wanted to be a shredder. I yeah. wanted to do the big heavy metal solos, and then I got to be about like fourteen or something like that, and you start realize that the only other people that are into heavy metal are dicks, <laughs> 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 and uh, and you start sort of going, I want to be cool, and then I heard. That joke isn't funny anymore. And how soon is now? Okay. And I was like, oh my God. So yeah, he was the guitar hero. Like, so that was great for me because it got me into a whole different kind of music. I, I loved it, but it was, I needed there to be a guitarist. And it was Johnny Marr. Right on. Right on. Oh, good for you. You've gone from Maiden to Marr. That's right. <laughs> what do you guys do when, when you're not doing this? Is it just all about the music for you? Do you turn the music off at any point and... I teach guitar at Guitar Center in Tacoma, Washington. Do you really? Yes. Do you live in Washington? Yes. Oh, wow. I, I have an affinity for the Pacific Northwest. Ah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, yeah. What brought you there? A woman. We got a lot in common besides the haircut, Paul. <laughs> How about you, John? Family life takes up a lot of stuff. and uh, I play a lot. I play a lot of stuff. My wife's a Frank sister's a singer and I play in her band. There's some musicians I know from Ireland that I play more a bit of traditional stuff with but I'm pretty much on the road a lot and recording and does that dictate when you guys 
decide to get together and go back on, on no, the road or to make no. a record? No, our stuff is always kind of priority, really. You know, but the nature of what we do and the circumstances we find ourselves in is is it's kind of rare the chances we get to do stuff as recording goes. Do you cherish these times doing this now, or is it work? Yeah. Well, this is treasure. I don't keep a diary, but I, oh, I do keep a diary sometimes. No, I love it. I love I love all the catching up with the guys, playing the songs, meeting the people that have had the songs by their sides for a while. And, uh, you know, it's fuel for, for what you're doing. You sort of realise that you connect with people and they, they, you know, they, they treasure what you do. And even though this is what some people would think was maybe just like a nostalgia trip and somehow it's lesser, I think it's quite refreshing. A lot of these songs I've played for a while, so I'm noticing things that I probably wouldn't do now, writing songs, but maybe I should think about more just little hooks and little funny little things, characteristics that we used to do on both those records. They're quite far apart and they both get different things that they do. So it's a bit of analysis, which is kind of kind of interesting. Your kind of writing radar is, is, is finds this interesting. But the major thing I find interesting is just meeting people and, and realising how much songs mean to them. And uh, that's, that's just fuel for going back to doing more. Right. Very healthy. That's the ultimate fuel, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, totally. It's interesting to me, I've done a lot of these interviews, and, and whenever I interview a band of veterans who've been doing this for a long time, there's a, I don't mean to blow smoke up your ass here, but there's like a wisdom and a purity to what you guys do that maybe always existed. Do you feel like you feel the way about this band and the music you make now in the same way you did when you were 30? Does your perspective evolve as the band evolves? And the, does your appreciation for what this means to you and the other guys in the band evolve? The very initial things that, that sort of chained us together or welded us together was it was a real like, wow, that's great what you did to that. Or you, you, know, you saying, oh, I like this, somebody being interested. That's the major thing that I find is uh, never really changed. If I can play something to Paul or Frank and, and they like it, no, I'm buzzing. I'm totally buzzing. Right on. See, that's the thing I feel like I've been missing for my own career is that camaraderie. As a solo yeah. artist, it's difficult to well, camaraderie is a good word. You know, you can get that in pubs or anywhere, you know, but there's something about creating something. For sure. If the three of us can agree to, you know, the quality of it, then, you know, you're, you're kind of walking on air. You're, you're buzzing. Something's, something's arrived. Is the trash can Sinatra's still the trash can Sinatra's? When Paul quits to join Iron Maiden, is it the three <laughs> of you guys or bust? Uh, uh, I don't know. Probably. Who knows? When are you doing that? Pretty glitzy guitarists. Yeah, that's, that's a big <laughs> question. <laughs> the rotation is is gone from albums one and two. Now we're here for albums three and four. And Paul says albums five and six, it's it's not going to sound as uh, as cohesive in an acoustic format. So, oh, so we're just going to go on and make album seven. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that was good. Well, that's a great segue, Paul. Thank you. What's what's next for the Trash Cancer Notches after this tour? Yeah, we're going to make a new album. We started making it, and we're, so we're going to finish it and then bring it out. Yeah, there will probably enough. be some gigs with a drummer and a bass player. That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, any further than that is crazy well i look forward to when that comes out and i'm looking forward to seeing you guys perform two albums tonight happy pocket and weightlifting have a great show tonight thank you very much guys for the thank time. you i discovered a wheel and watched the buildings go by you talk a little soft turn off the radio i just want 
That was Weightlifting, the title track from the Trash Can Sinatra's fourth album. Earlier, we heard How Can I Apply? Get the goods, find out more. It's all at trashcansinatras.com. Big thanks to John and Paul for the conversation, Frank for spreading the disease, the fine folks at Jam and Java, and the band's tour manager, Jess, for the accommodations, and Frank Keith at Baby Robot Media for putting it all together. And a thousand blessings upon the homes of all of you who've taken another trip with me down the Indie Music Highway. You can hear every single episode of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iFortRadio. What? It's iHeartRadio? Get the f*** out of here. That's iHeartRadio. Ooh, pardon me. Independent Minded is also featured at the Vinyl District. Get album reviews, live concert footage, giveaways, and all things vinyl at thevinyldistrict.com. And stalkers, pay attention. You can find out more about me at baldfreak.com and on social media at baldfreakmusic. And if you know a cool independent artist that should be featured on this podcast, send me some love and email form at ron at baldfreak.com. And check out my latest indie music release under the moniker Hipster Slaves. It's available now wherever you buy music or wherever you listen to music now that you no longer buy it. You can sample some of the new tracks at hipsterslaves.bandcamp.com. Next time on Independent Minded, another sick singer cancels on me. But I remain undaunted and have a great talk with the bass player backstage at 930 Club instead. He's Matt Santos of Syracuse, New York indie rock band Ra Ra Riot. Who's got a cough drop? <laughs>